Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we have a a guest, uh, Professor Neil Krause, who's who's a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. And he's just written a book called The Fantasy Economy, Neoliberalism, Inequality, and the Education Reform Movement. And uh, yeah, so he's talking about a lot of the stuff that I talked about in, in my book, too, but, but focus specifically on, you know, education reform and the idea that, uh, you know, more skills will help you get a better, better job, solve inequality, solve poverty, and everyone gets a pony. You know, it's like if a friend of the pod and professor also in Wisconsin and friend of Harvey K, John Shelton's book, The Education Myth, made love to your book, it would produce this baby, I feel like. <laughs> I feel like it's a nice, it's, it's related in that way. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think Neil, Neil is like two degrees removed from Harvey JK, which is nice because uh, a friend of John and, and John's, of course, a friend of Harvey. And, and now we're all friends of the pod. So it's a, it's a good time. And this is a good discussion. Um, always timely, sadly, these discussions about neoliberalism and uh, attacks on higher education and specifically the, the way that the narrative in creating this fantasy economy uh, works and um, the lies it tells. And then, you know, what I found really cool in the book were some of the empirical data supporting uh, the debunking of those lies. And, and, the, and, the, and the real economy is, in fact, not at all what these neoliberals claim it is. And so it's an, an interesting tack to take in, um, you know, opposing this pernicious approach to education and democracy, right? Yeah. Yeah, the the education reformers, the neoliberals, they made a lot of very specific promises about what would happen if we, you know, jacked up the educational attainment for everybody. Um, and uh, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. It was a complete failure. <laughs> Liars. Liars. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's a good time. And uh, yeah, I think people appreciate it. Before we get to uh, the interview, a uh, regular reminder, as usual, that the, this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect magazine. Um, if you subscribe at $10 a month, you can get a free digital subscription. Um, if you subscribe at $5 a month, you'll get our bonus episodes, which, of course, are included in the $10 tier. Um, or you can uh, just enjoy the free stuff. It's all good. But any other help... Um, Assistance is appreciated. Rate, review, send to your friends, especially with the, uh, you know, the decay of Twitter. It's become uh, quite a bit more difficult to promote things, uh, even if you use it's Twitter. True. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> help us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we appreciate it. Um, and also feel free to email us, DM us um, any questions you have or requests you have, uh, things like that. We always love that interaction. So uh, thanks again for listening. Yeah. Left anger podcast at gmail.com, but let's stop fiddling around and get to our interview with Neil Krauss right now. Uh, Neil. Hi, welcome to the program. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks very much. Thank you for having me. So, so your, your book is called the fantasy economy and you know, like, like any, uh, incredibly insightful analyst of the, you know, modern society and economics and so on. I thought a, a good question to ask you would be, what is the fantasy economy? The fantasy economy is 
basically a, a misleading version of the economy and education system that's in the interests of uh, corporations and the wealthy. Um, and I came up with the concept to sort of juxtapose what we hear all the time, particularly in, in education, um, all of the claims that we hear all the time about uh, a high-skill labor market, a skills gap, and so forth, with uh, the real economy, uh, the one that we live in and uh, work in and our students uh, become graduates and go to work in. Um, and the title just kind of came to me. I don't know. I've worked on the book for eight or nine or 10 years, really. And maybe about four or five years ago, I thought, you know, all of this is heading towards kind of this mythical version of things. And so I decided to, to call it the fantasy economy. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. And, uh, you know, I liked it and because there, there's, there's a fair bit of overlap with uh, my book that, that I wrote. Um, you know, I, I, I talk a bit about, you know, sort of human capital, student debt and that sort of thing. Um, and, and one, you know, a, a, a story I like to tell the, the, um, to, to sort of illustrate this is something Joe Biden said, uh, back in 2018. Uh, he was giving a speech at the Brookings Institution and he said that if you have a PhD in physics, if you don't go back for training in 10 years, then you're obsolete. And he didn't quite explain what uh, he meant by that. Like if you're supposed to go get another PhD or something, but I think that sort of illustrates what, what you're getting at with the fantasy economy, namely this idea that education is sort of the universal solvent for economic problems. And that if, if the economy is doing poorly, um, you know, in 2018, it was doing better than it was, you know, six years or seven years previously, you know, or 10 years previously, especially when the, when the, um, you know, during the financial crisis, um, you know, it's like people have no jobs and stuff. Well, what they need to do is they, they need to take responsibility for their own actions and they need to go get more education. Um, and this idea that you need to, as the individual, bend yourself somehow to the, to the needs of the economic system rather than the other way around. And I don't know. It, I think that it's funny that, that Joe Biden has not governed according to this, uh, this notion of his from 2018 at all. In fact, he's kind of gone completely the opposite direction, but it seemed like a decent sort of encapsulation of the idea you're driving at here. Am I, am I correct to say that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that quote, but wow, that's um, that's interesting. And it's interesting that he said it at Brookings too, of course. Um, yeah. But you know, to to say if you have a PhD in physics, ten years, you know, you're obsolete. I mean, that that kind of argument uh, has been made, and and most of my book really covers the '80s to the present, but it does go back a little further. Um, the first time I. That, that I came across the word upskilling was 1989 uh, headline, New York Times. It's an article I talk about several times in the book. Um, and I, I don't know if it was used before then, but, you know, if you read higher ed stuff today or, or may, you know, much of the major media, they'll talk about how the labor market is upskilling. Um, it, it's never not upskilling, but in reality, and this is really a large point of the book, the labor market hasn't changed very much at all in, in 40 years. Um, 
it, it, you know, as I like to say, the jobs are the jobs and, um, you know, uh, warehouses and home health care and uh, retail and food services uh, are dominant jobs uh, year in and year out. Um, if you look at the jobs that dominated the economy in the 80s and 90s, uh, it's not that much different. It, it, it's really not that much different. And, um, you know, I talk about STEM quite a bit in the book. The number of jobs that are actually STEM jobs is very, very small. It's for four-year degree holders, it's, it's, it's minuscule. It's in the, it's in the neighborhood of, uh, single, small, single digits, like 2% maybe. I mean, you'd have to go through the hundred jobs that the BLS considers STEM jobs. And, you know, a lot of them require graduate degrees. A bunch of them require two-year degrees. So then you get rid of those. All of them, by the way, are only like 6.7 or something percent of the entire labor market are all STEM jobs, right? You remove the ones that require graduate degrees and two-year degrees, and then you go down to the ones that require four-year degrees. It's it's something like 2% of all jobs are for four-year degree STEM uh, holders. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it it's always, and this is one of the themes of the book, right? It, it, if you don't like your economic situation, whatever it is, um, you always have to go back and get another degree, get more skills. Um, or you should maybe look at, you went to the wrong school, you got the wrong degree, or, and this is kind of difficult to say out loud. So they don't, you know, uh, maybe it's just something about you that's, uh, you know, <laughs> that's right. Know. Anything, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or as, you know, Andrew Carnegie, who you, who you talk about in the book would say, you're just, you know. Uh, not not one of the the worthy ones who, whose innate talents would uh, bring you up to the top and, and could then you know uh, you're one of the ones to be taken care of philanthropically by the actual elites right uh, because it's it's clear that the market basically shows that you uh, you are not uh, you're not worth all that much you can't you have no value and so that's that's just uh, kind of what the empirical data shows here. And this, this, it's an interesting thing how, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about your book to me, Neil, is how little changes ideologically, even with the fancy shifts to like neoliberalism and, and a lot of things changing in terms of rhetoric and policy, but some of the core kind of hierarchical assumptions remain the same throughout. Uh, and, you know, we on Left Anchor, obviously, we, we are egalitarian and we've, we've long, you know, called out neoliberalism for how unfair it is to make it morally uh, upon the individual to be responsible for social ills and these structural problems. But I think your, your, your book also debunks, like, even if people were superheroes, the jobs, as you just said, aren't even there. So even if, you, if the coal miner, right, goes learning, learns how to code, that doesn't mean he's going to succeed because you're being sold a lie about the labor market itself, right? Uh, that's exactly right. There's an outstanding book that I, I cite a few times, The Education Gospel. It's It came out uh, early 2000s. Um, and it, it, it was, I look at it now as just, I, I don't know why that book was not, was not uh, um, uh, just, just, looked at much more credit much more seriously at the time it it um but one of the things one of the quotes i have in the in my book from that book is is along those lines saying that you know um college for all is in in some ways almost cruel uh and it, because you're right i mean you could teach anybody to do anything but 
you know, the economy is dominated by certain kinds of jobs and, um, you know, they will, they will probably incur student debt to get those degrees. Right. Uh, in this day and age, the student debt will be, uh, probably pretty significant. And then if they, you know, if they can't get a job in technology or in any kind of middle-class stable, um, you know, position, uh, what, what happens? Well, we know what happens. They, they get, uh, uh, they take it out in the education system and, and, you know, it, it, uh, who could blame them? We've, we've sold them this bill of goods that we can't deliver. Right. Um, and, and it, you know, I, I'm not suggesting everybody is who's underemployed is hostile towards, towards higher ed. I don't think that's the case, but I do think, some folks are hostile and some are probably just indifferent. So then policymakers can do what, what they do and what they have done in all 50 states. And that is reduce funding for public higher education gradually, but very intentionally over a period of decades, not lose really any votes. Um, and, you know, and then higher ed has to just continually defend public higher ed. We have to defend just receiving any money at all. You know, like, why should we fund you at all? Um, but it's, you know, something that I point out too in the book repeatedly is it's important to remember it's not just underemployed individuals, it's people working in jobs that actually require degrees that are, that are, um, not able to make ends meet, that are not, not earning close to middle class wages, right? Um, and oftentimes that, that, you know, uh, discontent is sort of, uh, you know, directed at higher ed, right? When that, when that happens. And, and that's, I mean, what percentage of college graduates is that? It depends what your cutoff is for a middle-class income. And there's obviously, that's a subjective thing, but um, it's certainly not what uh, some of the consultants and foundations in the book talk about, I mean, by any stretch. And, uh, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it, 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 the whole thing has been kind of a mythical, uh, a mythical version of things and the whole, the whole sort of campaign here. And yet it's, it's so pervasive, right? That's why it's hard to get beyond it. Can you talk a little bit about where this idea comes from? You know, is, is it just a certain, you know, surface plausibility to it? You know, cause I could imagine if you're sort of a night, if you're, if you're naively looking at sort of, uh, you know, income data versus like educational attainment, you could say, golly gee, uh, can, uh, c- community college degrees, they, they have, they earn more than high school degrees and four year degrees more than community college and graduate degrees more than four year degrees. And so therefore, if we just like pile on the degrees, then that will magically increase the, uh, the, the earning power of the, the masses. Um, or is there something more insidious going on there? I mean, I, I think that that's a really good point. And I always stipulate right up front, and I say this in the book too, that it, it's certainly the case that, you know, four-year degree holders earn more on average than high school degree. And then, you know, so on up the line, right? Those, those averages are, are definitely, you know, accurate and, and they're, they're accurate now. They were accurate 30, 40 years ago. That's true on an individual uh, basis, but in the aggregate, in the aggregate, that that's the so, so folks look at that, right? It's it's like the lottery, you know. I mean, I'm I I don't have any chance at winning the lottery if I don't buy a ticket. <laughs> uh, it, you know, if I buy a ticket, I maybe I'll get 
something, you know, win 40 bucks or something, or maybe I'll get this big jackpot. I think that's how a lot of folks, unfortunately, are looking at higher ed now, but I can't, if I don't go to higher ed, then I can't, I can't even try to benefit from it. Um, so it's at one level, it's, it's rational and, and, you know, to, to, for the individual to say, uh, you know, I'm going to pursue higher ed. Absolutely. Given the, the jobs that are out there. And I understand that. And, um, you know, the numbers along those lines are pretty consistently the case, but then the question is, you know, what happens if, if, um, everyone has a bachelor's degree and up, uh, well, we're going to get a lot of even more, uh, unhappy people working in warehouses and in retail and in food services and as bartenders and wait staff and hotels and hospitality, uh, and all the rest of it than we do now. And it's, a, it's, you know, according to the New York branch of the federal reserve, they have this great data set goes back decades. Um, it's, it's consistently about a third of, of four-year degree holders, almost exactly, it, it hardly varies at all. About one third of four-year degree holders, bachelor's degree holders, are are at any one point in time are underemployed. Um, and it's interesting how in 30 some years, those numbers have varied almost not at all. Um, you know, during recessions, they go up a bit, but uh, but they, they stay right around one third, 33% or so. Um, you know, we'd have a much greater number of folks, um, who were in that category if, and that's the paradox and, and, um, because, and, and, and really the book is, is about a political campaign. I mean, who could be opposed to sending all low income kids to higher ed? Who could be opposed to, you know, uh, giving, giving everybody the best education and, and, I'm not opposed to that at all. I support that a thousand percent. I've spent my career as a college professor. I've studied urban poverty for decades. I, you know, I know a lot about urban schools and, and, and cities generally and inequality. And the question is what can education do and what it can't do? Um, you see, Neil, all we need to do, we need to make everyone more agile. We need to innovate so that those 30, you know, it's consistently a 30% of people are just too lazy to innovate and create that, you know, be a self entrepreneur and be agile enough to do the gig economy and go drive an Uber and a Lyft at the same time you're going to school. And if you can just, you know, I mean, this is part of what you're, you're talking about here, the, the kind of marketing here of something that's a tremendous social ill and in a, in a horrible way for our citizens to have to like um, feel compelled to survive in a, in a market that is just structurally unfair. It's posed as like, no, it's great. You get to be this entrepreneur of the self. You know, you know what I mean? And, and if, if you, if you could just take advantage of the gig economy, which means you actually have to work multiple jobs without like a lot of like stability or protection. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and this, this is sold to us by not just, um, you talk about media, you talk about politicians, but even like Tim Cook, you know, who many people know succeeded Steve Jobs as, as head of, uh, of Apple. I was really struck by this anecdote where he explained moving manufacturing to Foxconn in China, not by what we all understand the reason for that to be, which is like cheap labor, right? But no, no, no. Chinese education, they have tremendous, it's this, it's the skills gap. The Americans don't know how to do what the Chinese know how to do in making the phones over there. And I thought, oh my God, wow, that, that, that narrative is really pervasive. Boy. 
No, absolutely. And um, yeah, that was, I think, a 60 Minutes interview, uh, if I remember right. Um, that, And I think the number that, you know, the CBS reporter was a million, maybe, um, however many, a large, large number, right, uh, of jobs associated with making iPhones uh, in China. And, you know, almost always, not always, but almost always, the, the argument is some version of that, that... Um, you know, uh, auto workers just didn't know enough advanced math, um, or, you know, um, technology workers or, you know, those in manufacturing just didn't have the skills. And every once in a while though, um, I don't think we hear this so much today, but, you know, I discovered this in all the reading and research every once in a while, somebody, you know, a business leader would say, well, it's just, you know, folks just don't understand how things work now. You know, they kind of let that one slip. Uh, and, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, so th- that's a different perspective than, um, than the folks in Ohio or Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or whatever don't have the skills to, d- to do these jobs. Um, and, and it's, you know, it, one thing I, you know, tell folks and, and uh, I, there's never not going to be a skills gap. I mean, there can't not be a skills gap according to, 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 you know, to interest groups, to, to business leaders, because as soon as unemployment could be 20% and there's still going to be a skills gap because it's, it's a political position that deflects all attention away from, uh, away from, uh, you know, business employers and so forth and puts it all back on, uh, all back on education and on the workers themselves. So, um, you know, and everybody has a right to represent their interests, right? I mean, um, but it's funny how that, the skills gap is on the news pages. And if you question the skills gap, uh, you're confined to the opinion pages. <laughs> um, but even though it's it's basically just, you know, typically just about perceptions and, you know, surveys of, of CEOs and things like that um, with very little actual data about, well, how many people qualify in this region are qualified for this job, like have the credential, right? Uh, and how many positions are there and what is the wage that's being offered? Uh, I mean, you need all that information to really to really evaluate any kind of argument about a worker shortage or a skills gap. And those, uh, you know, though all that information pretty much never makes it into news accounts of, of this stuff. So the notion that there's a skills gap just, just took off. And, um, you know, uh, became kind of, uh, I don't know if something, if you repeat something enough times, right, I guess it just becomes true. Uh, and that seems to be kind of what happened with, with the skills gap in my view. Yeah. I, I, I think this deflection point is very important. Um, you know, like I remember during the Obama years, especially you would, you would have people talking a lot about education and poverty, that poverty is caused by lack of education. Arnie Duncan, who is the uh, secretary of education under Obama for a number of years, would say this a lot. And, you know, there's like an alternative theory you could think of. It's like, okay, so you have a certain, you have a certain uh, portion of people who don't have enough money. Well, you could just tax the rich and give them some money and then they would have some. Uh, a much more straightforward and I would think more reliable uh, way to achieve the money shortage um, you know, fixing that we want to uh, achieve. And we had a test of this with Biden's uh, child tax credit that was here for a year. 
and child poverty went down by 40 <laughs> percent because we were uh, and that and that illustrates, I think, you know, an important truth, uh, you know, with poverty specifically, which is that it's mostly caused by the fact that there's large portions of the population that that shouldn't or don't work like children, uh, students, disabled people, retired people um, and unemployed people who, by definition, you know, have no job but are looking for one, you know. And so, like, just give those people money and then they will have money. And in a sense, it's like you you really need a sort of ideological battering to be able to think that education is going education so that you can get a better job is going to solve the problem of lack of money caused by not being able to work. You know, so it's like not connected at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, poverty at the end of the day, right, is I think what you're getting at is, is about a lack of, of income, a lack of, of money, a lack of funds. And, you know, there's a lot of ways to to bring, you know, to change that. There's a lot of ways to to increase, you know, people's uh, income, to increase the amount of money people have. The, the way, the one thing you mentioned, I mean, that's one possibility in terms of, you know, through the tax code and so forth. I mean, I argue that, you know, wages should be raised for, for pretty much everyone and, and well, most everyone, uh, and the minimum wage of course should be pegged to inflation and things like that. You know, and I, I, I guess as you know, it's interesting you talk about the Obama administration. I mean, I think, um, and I don't really talk in the book much about, uh, the Obama administration a little bit, I guess, but, um, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting to me, you know, uh, I, I suspect a lot of folks sincerely believe that educate, you know, it's particularly the, I, I'm just guessing now. So a lot of the Obama folks probably really believe that sincerely believe that, you know, education is the key to getting, getting kids out of poverty. Um, and, and I don't want to sug- at all argue that, that a lot of folks don't sincerely believe that. I think, th- I think they do. I think a good number of people do believe that, but it's not as if data from the Department of Labor is top secret. <laughs> it's not as if we, we we don't have access to the jobs that are out there in the world. I mean, every month, right? Something that's interesting to me in the last bunch of years, the monthly jobs report is a big news story. It, di- it didn't used to be 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, but it's always just the top line that's the news story. Like today, I think it was 150,000 and uh, you know, jobs were created in October, uh, something like that. Uh, but if you read that really sort of dull and dry report, it's like tw- 10 to 14 pages or whatever it is, you know, it lists all what the jobs are every single month and what, what, you know, what industries, what sectors they're in. And, you know, consistently we see, you know, hospitality and, things like that, you know, construction. Um, and then it'll say something about, you know, services, but services is kind of vague because some service jobs are, are very well paying and high skill, but a lot of them are not, um, you know, so, um, so on one hand, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to question that a lot of folks really believe that if we just educate all low income kids or whatever, that that will then raise them all up. I mean, I, I do think a lot of people really believe that, but on the other hand, and this is why I started the project years ago, it's like, well, if, if everybody needs education, right. Um, and, and we're education, I'm in higher ed. Um, why are we getting killed all the time politically? Why can we do nothing right? That's not how politics works, you know? 
I mean, if you have something everybody needs in the political system, um, then you have some power. You know, you can't just be your budgets can't just be cut or, you know, you can't be kicked around. I mean, higher ed is just a battering ram. I mean, we're, we're, we can do nothing right. And, and that didn't make sense to me. I'm like, what's going on? So I started just reading. Oh, now I get it. These are the jobs that exist. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not what we're hearing at all, really. I mean, the, the, the jobs that are in the world and then the wages that, that that's all, of course, in painstaking detail and federal data, how much do, how much do uh, folks in food services make? You know, in about two seconds, we can find out what the, what's, I mean, it's amazing the data the Department of Labor has, you know, median 90th percentile. To, I mean, just everything of 800 plus occupations or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's so, it's just vast. And I started like reading all this stuff thinking, oh, this is the world we live in. This is it. This explains why you can do, you know, why we can't fix uh, uh, inequality and why it's very easy to kind of mobilize indifference or opposition to education. Um, but, but yeah. Um, so no, I think that's a, I think that's a, um, I think that's a sincerely held belief. And as, as you write about, you know, Neil, I, and I can't enter the minds of the Obama folks, uh, and if they have good intentions, we all know uh, how the, the road to, to hell is paved. So um, what you uh, show, though, is that those with good intentions or those that are naive are joined by more pernicious forces that make money off of these lies, right? And educational consulting uh, industry, in fact, is making money off of these lies. Um, and they even have their own alternative data. So, so if you could jump into like the kind of um, business interests that, that specifically benefit from misleading people about the nature of the labor market and about uh, things like the skills gap in the fantasy economy and, and the role that, that, that they play and how they profit from it a little bit. I mean, I think that the, there's a couple uh, ways that I think this works. Um, in, you know, in higher education, um, th- there's a, a, a very large and growing number of firms that um, are really de- – their whole business model is built on uh, a tuition-driven system, for example, right? So public higher ed has become largely tuition-driven. Um, if you ask anybody who works in, in – well, or, or at a private school, but, you know, most – most students and most faculty work at public institutions. Um, they will tell you that everything is about like, what are the numbers for next fall? Like that drives everything. Um, now, why is that such a big thing? Because, uh, you know, the states have gradually kind of walked away from funding public higher ed. So that's why, that's what's left us in this position. So this whole, this whole industry has boomed. Um, it's really, um, it's really built on, you know, enrollment management and making sure you're, you have, um, um, you're recruiting the right students and, and, you know, and all these different things that are marketed and that higher ed buys every single day. Um, and all of which are marketed to us and sold as another game changer, but the game never changes. Um, <laughs> so you have a lot of those sort of, and, and then online ed, I mean, that that's, that's its own <laughs> That's like the holy grail for corporate America. It, it occurs to me that, that that we our institutions are our institutions are kind of treated in the same way that an individual is treated. The institution has to be agile and innovate, and it, it's like not just an individual has to become an entrepreneur, but these institutions have to become entrepreneurial in order, right? But it's the same lie for the institution's success as it is for the individual success, right? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And, 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 uh, colleges and universities are, are, you know, basically told, well, you have to do this, you have to do that, or you're going to be left behind. And there's all this political pressure that's just endless. Um, and there's so many interests connected to, to online education. I mean, it's hard to know where to start the pandemic. We had a two, two and a half year experiment, right. With, uh, essentially forced, uh, online education. Uh, and this is the one thing that, you know, I talk about this a little bit towards the end of the book. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of different constituencies and, you know, of, of groups of, of students and, and, and in K-12 and in higher ed that were like, Hey, we actually like classes with people and in rooms and professors and our, and, you know, other students and all that. Um, so there was quite a bit of, and, you know, not to mention parents who often pay for higher ed for their kids. Um, there was quite a bit of, of, and to me, it was understandable pressure to, you know, to start teaching again in, in person and in, in classes. Um, online's been around for decades and it's never really taken off in a big way, even despite, you know, whatever year was the year of the MOOC, like 10 or 12 years ago and, and all this stuff, um, so that there's that sector that's that's always 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 trying to um, increase its reach and um, just basically convince the education community, hey, this is the future, you know, and so get on board. But I think so. There's a lot of vested interests, right? This um, these immediate interests that that stand to benefit. But I, I, one of the things I the overarching interest though. And this is what unites, I think, everyone. It unites foundations and it unites the business interest groups and and uh and, and also unites all the, the tech firms is to really make the whole debate about um economic opportunity solely a debate about education, right? Keep the focus on education. So that that unites like, you know, libertarian uh business interests and 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 uh, more tech oriented foundations and that unites them all it's always 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 about education right so if the talk is about economic inequality bring it back to the schools bring it back to higher ed always um and, and that's i think their biggest interest and that's in many ways what they've succeeded the most spectacularly at getting getting virtually all of us and and conventional sort of mainstream discussion and debate to focus like a laser on, you know, if you want to move up, if you want economic security, if you want mobility, then you got to do it through the education system. End of story. Um, and I think that really, that really unites all the different, because there's a lot of different, um, one of the things I discovered, I mean, there are, you know, foundations that are more libertarian oriented. There's some that are, you, you know, I guess you classify as sort of uh, neoliberal. There's, um, there's some that are more just, um, I don't know, kind of in the middle. I mean, um, and then business interests, they vary a little bit too, depending upon what they're talking about. But but they tend not to vary. None of them really deviate from it's all about education. It's all about education. And uh, that that's, yeah. I think, one of the – the overarching kind of um, interest of all of them really. Keep the you know keep the keep the heat on the the education system and and away from them and off of them right yeah um, yeah with- and off of the 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 assault on unions off of uh, the fact that the minimum wage hasn't been raised at the federal level in a long time off of you know decades of outsourcing and deindustrialization and and all the other things that 
um, you know, we've just witnessed and experienced in the last several decades and just focus, focus it all on the schools and then just sort of to maintain, maintain the status quo, really. Yeah. The, the first deflection, you know, is, is away from welfare state, tax the rich, give to the poor. And then the second deflection, I think we should mention, you know, uh, is, is from unions, um, that, you know, over the last, uh, a couple of weeks, we've seen the United Auto Workers extract these enormous, uh, new contracts out of the big three automakers. And that has also caused wage increases at, at lots of the other plants just to keep their workforces. Um, you know, led by our boy, Sean Fain, uh, you know, it's like the first like militant, uh, head of the UAW they've had in like 40 years. And then suddenly, you know, he's just ringing huge increases and, you know, they're on a sol- solidaristic basis. One of the big, um, you know, points of it is to compress the wage scale. So you had these people who were making like pretty good money. Um, they got, w- uh, increases, but not as big. And, and, and I think the average one was like 25%, but for people, that were on these like tiered contracts. So they they had gotten hired later. And so they, according to the previous contract are being paid much less. They're getting boosts to like 80%, some of them, you know, so we're, we're talking about going from, you know, sort of scraping by on like, you know, maybe 35,000, something like that to like squarely in the, in the middle class. And they didn't go back and get a damn degree. You know, they, they, they struck the companies and then they forced them to pay them more money, you know? And, and that I, the, the flip side of that that I think is important to acknowledge is that the big three are also doing really, really well. They're selling lots of cars for high prices and breaking in huge profits. So they have the money to give to the workers. The, the, the value that they, you know, at least help create by any, you know, economic theory. Um, and that's, you know, that's how you create good middle class jobs. You, you, uh, you, you basically force the corporations to, to, to disgorge the surplus to the workers rather than to executives and shareholders. And like, it's some big mystery, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I, I think you're right. And, and there's been a lot of gains too in, in higher ed because of, of strikes, uh, across the country, you know, in, in, in terms of graduate assistance and others, um, uh, we've seen this in a, in a number of states and it, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to happen, uh, it, 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 short of a strike. And I, and I doubt, you know, if the UAW did not strike, I mean, what would have happened? Probably very little. Right. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I think, and you know, like you point out, there were some significant gains there. Um, but they only came as a result of that, of that action for sure. Something you, you kind of t- touch on a bit in the book is that is that this you know the fantasy economy model of uh you know higher education that it's responsible for everything and you know kind of especially the way in which students are encouraged to approach the process of education as purely monetary like you're just getting uh money and that I hear that like my wife's a college professor and it's just this like a sort of apathy that you see because they're not they're thinking about it you know like like all you want is a certificate that will get you a job and not like develop your brain so can you talk a little bit about how this is sort of like inherently degrading to to the concept of education as such you know i think that's a i think that's a good point and and cert, you know young people today I mean, they've grown up in this culture, in this society in which, unfortunately, they know that 
more often than not that their chances depend on getting getting it, their economic chances really depend on getting a degree. You know, if you're 18 or 19 or 20 or you're a young person, that's all you know. That that's the only and that's all you've heard basically uh, from a from a young age. And so anybody who teaches, you know, anybody who's a professor, you know, we deal with that all the time. And it's, and education, this is what's most frustrating, of course, higher education reinforces that rather than pushing back on it. They, you know, we reinforce it and we mark it. Oh no, we have these, you know, these majors that will lead to these jobs and, and, and sort of reinforcing that, that way of thinking. And ultimately, in my view, kind of, you know, hurting ourselves in a big way uh, because we can't control the labor market. We can't, you know, uh, even if people get jobs that require degrees, um, we can't increase their wages, right? We being higher ed. And so what happens, I think, back to, you know, your question, I think it, it does, like the purpose of education has been so transformed. It, it, it's, I don't think it's lost. It's not lost. I think anybody who teaches will talk, you know, will tell you about the magic that happens in the classroom, you know, every day. Uh, and, and, you know, in any field, they'll, they'll, anybody will talk about that. That's not gone at all. That's still there. That's what gives me hope. And and uh, um, and and you know why, Neil? You know why? It's because we didn't get into this for the money. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <we're> not- <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you know, uh, I think the vast majority, if not all, people who teach really at any level got into it because they. They like teaching and they like interaction with students and they and they like their discipline. They like learning. They like research. They like writing. They like, you know, the act of teaching and classes and stuff. So it's it's it, it, it is, though, I think the word you used, Ryan, was, it, you know, sort of degrades the purpose of education. And unfortunately, I think that's true. And, and I, I do think that um, it's incumbent to, you know, to push back against that because, if we don't, I think we know where the ship is going uh, and it's not good. It's not good at all. It's not good for – it's terrible for higher education and it's not good for K-12 education either without a, a rethinking of, hey, wait a minute. The education system can't can't change the jobs that are out there, folks. This, the, the education um, is about much more, <laughs> much more than just uh, training people for jobs or or it's about – creating democratic citizens and and giving students purpose and exposing them to new ideas and, and all kinds of different things and new kinds of, you know, uh, people interacting with new people and going places and, and doing all these things, right? Education is about, you know, human growth. And uh, um, the more, you know, the more pressure is placed on education and the more pressure students feel like, oh no, this is my only shot, right? Then that whole process, I think, does contribute to that that degradation of 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 education and education should be at the forefront of trying to redirect that in my view right because there are vicious and virtuous circles at, at play here right in the same way that the kind of austerity uh, policies that take away the money and the resources and the literal staff and faculty um, from these places that uh, elites say are the the be all and end all of the economy. Um, you know, so they're actually, you know, cutting off the nose despite the face there. But in the same way that uh, depriving us of the material resources we need to educate, the desperation and the economic distress of these students, a lot of whom are 
uh, you know, first generation or in very, you know, basically, I, I don't know about you. I have a lot of students who their whole families are relying on them to, to succeed um, and, and are they're like currently supporting them and, and, and hoping to really rescue them. These, you know, 19 year olds are thinking about rescuing their family. Right. Um, and that mindset, of course, works against. The, the very cultivation of the intellect that is free of those kind of worries so that it can not just be instrumental in its thinking so that it can develop freely in a way that, you know, uh, actually would probably help uh, achieve more in an instrumental way if you're allowed to just develop freely. And, and this is why I advise students to just try to um, take classes about that you enjoy so it feels less like work so that you get better at it so that, you know, it's, it's something that you end up putting a lot of time into and that makes you more, uh, you know, developed in your critical thinking and communication and so forth. And so even I, right, we have to pitch our students on the practicality of enjoying learning, which is crazy, right? But, 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 but there's a virtuous circle because you, you mentioned the democratic kind of civic formation or civic education and citizen formation part of it. The solution that higher education has, it seems to me, is in shaping the kind of citizens or people who are not just thoughtful enough but are aware enough of the political nature of this problem so that the policies and the circumstances can change and allow education to be what it's really for and allow people to really have their needs met in, in the ways that actually would solve those problems. And, and this is something that education can do and that I, I think we try to do, which is teach our students that <laughs> and liberate them from these, these false narratives, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, you talked about, you know, austerity. I mean, it, it, the student debt crisis is, is typically framed in terms of, well, runaway, you know, costs for higher ed. Higher ed is way too expensive. Well, over 70% of students attend public institutions in this country. Um, you know, community college, uh, four-year, you know, regional comprehensive flagships. It, it's a significant majority. Public higher ed has become so much more expensive uh, in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, that's a, that's the biggest contributor to, to student, to student debt. And yet, you know, oftentimes it's discussed in terms of, um, profligate spending by, you know, universities. And maybe there's some of that. It's not on faculty and, and staff, but, but that, you know, what I think of when you, you know, when you, when you talk that way about students in particular is that, Students take on more and more debt. Obviously, that is incredibly stressful for them. And they're thinking, you know, as to as I think we should expect, they're under more and more pressure to, wow, I have to take, you know, classes, major in something that's going to, you know, pay me as much as possible because I have fifty, sixty thousand dollars in loans just to get a degree from a, a public four-year school, right? I mean, 40, 50 years ago, public higher education was incredibly inexpensive. Community college is almost free in, in much of the much of the United States. I mean, so um, austerity runs counter to to all the things we're we're talking about in terms of of you know making education a liberating experience for students. Because too many of our students can't really, um, they can't really afford, I think, to to experiment with different classes, or 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 they think they can't afford to do that, right? Um, and I I get why they think that. That's all they've heard, and and that's all we've sold them, and and all the rest of it um, about why they're there, why they're in college in the first place, and uh, you know, and and it it it's it 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 
it's only detrimental to the educational experience, you know. Uh, and, and yet, in, in many states right now, uh, Wisconsin is one of them, right? Record state surplus and UW is getting a budget cut, right? And I keep telling people over and over again, uh, you know, we're going to have a recession, folks. It's going to happen. Unemployment's going to be 6%, 7%, whatever. It's going to happen. It might not happen next year. It might not happen for three or four years. But if there's not a pushback against austerity now, and by the way, there, I mean, I tried to look this up recently. I don't know the number. There are budget surpluses in, in a bunch of states in the United States, like all over the place, right? Um, and yet still public higher ed is being just killed, right, with, uh, with budget cuts and all the rest of it. If there's not a concern pushback now, uh, I don't even want to think of what's going to happen when we have a serious recession and, and revenues decline at the state level across the country. Yeah, it's going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster. Uh, and uh, um, the surplus is kind of an anomaly, right? These state surpluses, to this degree, don't happen much at all. And, um, but austerity is just the air we breathe in higher ed, you know? Uh, and then when you question it, what I, what I find over and over again, because I've done it a lot and I continue to do it, I, it's terrible, Neil. It's just awful. I, I agree. I agree. But there's just nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do. And I say, well, so the tax code and, and appropriations are preordained by God. I mean, what are you talking about? This is all politics. This is just politics or political decisions year after year after year. And it's, they're not legal or constitutional questions, right? They're, they're just political decisions, public policies. The budget is a policy document. And, you know, I, I, I don't know. By the way, Neil, I love that. I love that in, in, your, in your, I think it was in your Q&A at the, at the lecture you gave uh, recently, the Harvey J.K. lecture. Um, you know, shout out to a friend of the podcast, Harvey J.K. Um, I, at some point in your answer, you're talking about this is all just politics. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean uh, it can be changed. It can be changed. If it's political, that means we can change it. We, the polis, right, uh, are in charge of creating or recreating or, or, or changing the realities um, that are political. And, and that's it's, a, it's actually a liberatory thing to describe something as political in that sense. Right. It's not naturalized. It's not inevitable. That's exactly right, because it, an awful lot of, including an awful lot of very smart people, this, oh, that's just politics, and they shake their heads, and, the, and they think it can't be changed. And I say, I say no, and I say, it, it, that means it's not physics, or it's not the weather, <laughs> or it's not something else that can't be changed. It, it's a matter of, you know, decision. Is it hard? Yeah, it's very hard. But, um, you know, it, it, it can be changed. It has been, you know, what, I mean, what, what moment do you want to look at in American history that, you know, we were never going to, you know, women were never going to have the right to vote. And I mean, there's, you know, a hundred other things that have happened that could never happen. Right. Um, uh, and um, that's, what's, you know, most frustrating uh, for me that, that, that um, a lot of folks, you know, seem to believe that, it's just terrible, but it just can't be changed. Um, and, but there's a, of course, there's a lot of very powerful interests, right. That have a stake in creating that, that narrative that no, that, that it's just how things are now. Right. This is my big fear about, um, online education. And I, I compare it to, uh, standardized testing, which I have a chapter about in the book, no child left behind. Um, and that whole chapter is about how to sell standardized tests to the public. Right. Um, because the folks that were doing it, the foundations and everybody else, they knew 
that it was really unpopular. Standardized tests were very unpopular, that nobody, you know, not many people wanted them, et cetera, et cetera. So it was this long, very long campaign. And and by all accounts, it still wouldn't have passed without 9-11, right? But now, 22 years later, um, you don't have to, def- even though standardized tests really haven't done anything that they were supposed to do they haven't mitigated inequality they haven't they haven't you know given poor people opportunity or all these lofty goals because they can't by the way they've narrowed education a lot of schools have been shut down i mean it's been all pretty much all downside uh but you don't have to defend standardized tests anymore it's just how education is right this is my big fear about about online education it's just the the squeezing and squeezing and squeezing of of public higher education uh, now online ed is sold um, primarily in terms of, well, we, we just, we need more students. We got to go online. I mean, think about that, right? Uh, we're going to transform education fundamentally because we're not getting enough funding. So we're going to go to a, a completely different model that's just, uh, just, that's never really worked in the marketplace, even though it's been around for 30 plus years, it's never really taken off. But but here's the thing, just like standardized tests, if it's imposed, if it's imposed on large segments, and then we have a very stratified higher education system, it's already stratified. It's going to be completely stratified with, you know, the upper middle class and above are going to get in-person instruction and small classes and all that stuff. And then there's going to be everybody else, right? And once it's imposed, just how things are now, just how things are now, and and. And because there was a debate about No Child Left Behind, I wrote about this in the book for five, six, seven years after 9-11 fades and everything. It's like, there's all these people, all these parents and groups around the country are like, hey, wait a minute, what, what is this? What did we, we didn't sign up for this, right? You know, and it, and there's just so many interests that are attached to, to, to online ad. And you kill multiple birds with online ad, right? You, you allow austerity to continue in a, in a big way. By getting rid of of instructors and and entire schools, um, uh, you narrow the curriculum uh, because it's not about you know. As I tell a lot of my friends in the humanities, careful what you wish for if you teach online because it doesn't include the English major. It doesn't include art history uh, by and large. It, it's very much a narrowed curriculum, uh, and then of course there are all the interests that benefit just directly from it uh, as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, um, there's, there's an awful lot going on. And I think it, in the current moment, I think so much go, goes back to austerity. Yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I think it's, you would maybe sort of pointed out, um, that, yeah, you, you, you rely on this perception of inevitability, but the fact is like, like the whole four year higher education, uh, or, or public higher education, in total across the entire country is not that expensive. Uh, I remember, um, I forget the figures exactly, but, but people have added up, um, how much it would cost to cover the tuition for every student across the entire country. And it would, it would be, if I remember correctly, on the order of $70 billion. The federal government already spends more than that on various education subsidies, you know, Pell grants, and the deductibility of, of student loans, you know, all the various indirect ways that they subsidize. And so like, 
you know, we're not talking about, you know, another defense department here. You know, this it's it's like a half a percentage point of GDP or something like that. If we if we chose to. And by the way, as as Harvey would say, you know, the, the federal government's tax take is something like 20 points less than it is in in countries like you know, France, Denmark, Norway, you know, wealthy, pure nations. We've got lots of running room to find, you know, quarters in the couch cushions to find, to like, we could have a world-class, uh, you know, higher education that was free to anybody who wanted to take it and, 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 you know, pay, uh, uh, professors and staffers, you know, a living wage at least to get rid of adjuncts and, and bring back, you know, tenure track for, for, for pretty much everybody without, breaking the bank, you know, your medians person's taxes might go up by, you know, 20 bucks a year or something like that. Um, we, there, there's plenty of, there's, it's not remotely impossible from like, a just sort of mechanical dollars and cents standpoint. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, the funniest thing to me, I mean, one of the odd things and contradictions is, you know, a lot of the, the forces, you know, behind austerity, they're the same ones saying we need more skilled workers, right? That we have a skills yeah. gap. I want. I wanted to 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 point to that specifically, you know, because there's there's an effect here that I it's sort of indirect. I, I don't think you mentioned it in the book, if I remember correctly. But uh, you know, you're you're looking at um, an actual legit shortage of skilled workers in in many areas, as particularly construction right now. Um, why did that happen? Well, during the, uh, uh, 2008, you know, uh, financial crisis that was heavily like the economic damage was mostly in like homes and, uh, residential construction as a share of GDP plummeted to the lowest level since 1947 and stayed there for like eight years. And we didn't build any homes for a decade, basically. And, uh, the the construction industry got absolutely pummeled. You know, they lost, it was like 3 million jobs. You know, they didn't bottom out until like 2015 and start building back up again as they started to like make uh, progress on this backlog. And then suddenly, you know, the pandemic, you know, boom economy, post-pandemic boom economy happens. All the millennials want the homes that they couldn't afford before. And now we're trying to catch up to 10 years of not building any homes with the construction industry that's that was just devastated. And this was, you know, the economic uh, concept of hysteresis, you know, skill loss. People were unemployed. They lost their jobs. They retired. They, they quit and they, and they, they got rusty. You know, like th- this, this is something, a trade you need to practice to stay good at it, to learn like the new skills, to, to be able to put solar panels on roofs and stuff like things change. And they just didn't do that. It just let this huge body of skills in the economy rot because People were hyper focused on trying to make higher education fix the economy rather than giving people money so that they would spend and create more jobs and, uh, you know, keep the, keep the construction industry from, from just like belly flopping for half a decade. Um, and, you know, it's an indirect effect, you know, like, I mean, people do, they, they're like trade schools, right? For, for, for construction and stuff like that. But, you know, uh, a lot of this stuff is learned on the job, you know. It's hard to do it otherwise. I've done it myself. Uh, and yeah, you do. It's like, well, <laughs> the, the, the neoliberals, they, they killed our skills. They, they, they got rid of them all. 
Yeah, that can't can't you can't learn on the job when they're the jobs go away for several years, as you point out, right? I mean, that's, yeah. uh and then we're not building anything, and people are losing their homes and so forth. So, um, yeah, I mean, there there are you know uh, there's certainly and it, you know certainly cases right of of shortages of certain kinds of of workers and 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 uh, you know I don't in the book I talk about the the you know, petroleum engineers, there seems to have been a, a legitimate shortage of them. And what happened when we have shortages, true shortages, right? Wages go way up and people, you know, markets kind of work. I mean, labor markets kind of work and, and then more people get into that, that line of work. And that's, that's what happened with petroleum engineers in the early 2000s. It was we needed more of them. And so industry started to pay more and more and more. And then all these students went into it and then the, the oil market kind of, you know, fell off. And so it, it balanced out, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, like the great recession you point out with the housing market, that's a, a real specific um, event, a catastrophic event that had, you know, had serious effects on a, on a, you know, on one particular sector. And, uh, and, and it really, you know, it's interesting how like nine eleven, uh, you know, it was so significant for for education policy. It turns out, uh, with with no child left behind. But um, but yeah, so you know, um, shortages in, in some cases. I mean, you know, I don't want to suggest that there there are none ever. Um, um, but it, it by and large, you know, the argument that there's always a skills gap, there's always a shortage of skilled workers, is something that when you look at it over time, doesn't hold a whole lot of whole lot of you know merit. You said you wanted to talk about. Uh, the UW system. And I thought, you know, and maybe in our last few minutes, we could talk, you know, about like, you know, what the, the point of education, like, what do you want to see uh, changed to, to, to make it to, 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 you know, set up your sort of ideal system and like bring higher education back to where it should be um, rather than sort of stamping out, you know, whatever's the highest paid degree of the month, you know, like, you're saying with petroleum engineers. Yeah. I mean, right now the UW system is, is, uh, you know, the comprehensive campuses, um, which are the, you know, the four year comprehensives across the whole state. Um, I teach at one of them and there's, you know, a bunch of others are, you know, increasingly under, under uh, threat. We're, we're being sort of, uh, the priority seems to be to, to, to one way or another to sort of get us to specialize in, in a, uh, a certain, you know, certain types of, of program, right? Now, the whole notion behind the comprehensive campus is that it's comprehensive, right? Um, and, you know, fundamental to the Wisconsin idea was just like, just like, by the way, pretty much all state systems across the country, um, there was a flagship that was the the big, you know, the big center, but then there were four-year, you know, schools across, across the state, the, each of which had a, a wide range of programs. So, you know, most people, most students who go to college, they, they don't, they don't attend college, you know, five, six, eight hours away. I mean, a pretty good majority attend college within an hour or two, right? Um, so, you know, the whole notion of creating comprehensive campuses that are distributed geographically across the state, it's like in my home state of New York. I mean, uh, the SUNY campuses, the four-year schools are all over from the way up north in northern New York to western New York to north of New York City. Um, 
each of which has a range of programs that um, that students can take. So you don't have to go all the way to Madison or you don't have to go all the way to, to let's say, SUNY Albany, where I went to school, if you want to study political science or something. You could study it at one of the, or philosophy or English or, um, and there's immense pressure on the the, not just our system, but systems across the country to really sort of specialize. Um, that not that's bad for students and it's bad for the public. And uh, uh, I think it's just bad overall. Number one, it doesn't reflect the labor market. Um, there are just as many jobs, as far as I can tell, and this is a very specific historical question. To my knowledge, it hasn't been researched in detail, but I've looked at enough data over time. There are just as many jobs for political science majors and sociology and English and philosophy and history and 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 all these other majors today as there were 30 and 40 years ago. The big thing that has changed is that wages have been stagnant for so many, you know, folks working, like let's say as a legislative staffer, <laughs> uh, that you weren't going to get rich on in 1990 when I got my undergraduate degree, but today you probably won't, you might not be able to get by. So you opt out of that, right? Uh, as a political, you know, I can't afford to be a political science major. I think we need to keep four-year schools that aren't flagships. We need to keep them uh, diverse. We need to maintain all the you know the sort of range of programs and majors that they were created to 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 deliver to provide for students and, and i think that there's just this immense pressure to force us to specialize which again doesn't reflect the labor market because there aren't very very many stem and tech jobs that's a myth right there aren't tons of jobs in finance and and there aren't any more jobs i don't think as a percentage of the whole labor market in business today uh, in accounting or whatever, in finance, as there were 30 and 40 and 50 years ago. That doesn't seem to be the case. So I think maintaining comprehensive education is just so important, not only for students in the labor market, but for, you know, for democracy itself and, and, and to, to maintain, um, you know, the purposes of education. We really have to maintain educational institutions uh, because once we turn those sorts of schools we see you know because this is something that that you know i came across a lot and i've come across in wisconsin you know that critics of the system and business and and will say hey if you want to study french you can go to you know go to madison you can go to the flagship if you want to study you know be an english major you know you can go to the, the flagship big university um that really runs very you know counter to what why you know, the comprehensive campuses in a state like Wisconsin and really across the country were, were created. And we see this, by the way, you see this, you know, pretty much every day in the news, right? There's another school or, or public or private that's getting rid of all these majors because we can't afford them anymore. Um, or that's the thinking. That's, that's, you know, that's, a, that's quite concerning because once they go, Right. It's like standardized tests. It's like online ed. Once those things go, I don't see how I don't see how we go back, you know, and with democracy itself kind of hanging by a thread here, the jury's still out, you know, in terms of what this country is going to look like two and four and six and eight years from now. Um, And I think maintaining what the institutions of higher education, the way they've been created, the way they were created with democracy in mind way back in the day, is fundamental to maintaining democracy today as well. So that's 
that's you know that and sort of the the narrowing of 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 our of our curricula of our offerings and our this sort of compelled specialization and also this this sort of elephant in the room kind of thing with online ed because once that's imposed and those two things go together you, you know it, 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 you online ed is is the folks who are pushing it uh, uh, the, the interests that are pushing it they're not interested in 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 as far as i can tell they're not interested in having a whole range of majors that defeats the purpose because a lot, this is all austerity right again both of these things are driven by austerity narrowing the curriculum narrowing program offerings and imposing online ed and there's you know it's inexcusable that now of all times with a historic uh, state surplus that and not only in in wisconsin but in many many other states uh, a large state surplus uh, and yet still still higher ed is under fire right public higher ed is yeah it's concerning it's concerning to put it mildly but um yeah that's a, that's a lot of the stuff i'm thinking about right now for sure you know it's funny i studied stem you know i i uh, i studied chemistry um because i liked learning about science yeah. Um, but in my senior year, I had to do a research thesis and I learned that I do not actually like doing science very much because it sucks. <laughs> it's a, it's really boring and meticulous. And I'm kind of sloppy and lazy, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> so I became a journalist where sloppiness <laughs> and laziness are rewarded, practically a requirement for, uh, you know, joining the, the profession. Um, but no, it's, you know, it's, it's seriously like, it seems to me, you know, that, that in a democratic system with a functioning economy and like, say what you like about the United States, it is very rich that we could just organize our economic institutions such that like basically any, anybody can get a job and the job will pay a living wage. And what you study in university should be if you choose to go to university should be what interests you, you know, and, and that will teach you hopefully, you know, like I went to liberal arts school, which, which, you know, so I took a lot, I took a lot of history. I took some creative writing stuff and there's a general ed course, a humanities 110, uh, you know, where you read all the, or some of the great books, you know, and all that sort of thing. And yeah, that, that like, rather than saying, okay, we need to like hyper specialize so that we can fit like, oh, I'm going to like get my crystal ball out and estimate the labor market returns for my choice of major over the next 40 years, a task for which I am eminently qualified at 18 years old to do. It's like, we're teaching you how to think and how to be a citizen and how to like do lots and lots of different kinds of jobs. And then if, if you need hyper specialized, you know, uh, uh, experience, um, you know, outside of like maybe a few very technical subjects, you know, mathematics or science or that sort of thing. Um, it should be on the employers to some degree to teach you those skills on the job training, you know, and, uh, you know, we'll show you how to, how to, how to wire up a house or whatever, you know, you don't have to like learn everything and what it should be about is like becoming a mature, you know, person and a, and a, and a, and a, a democratic subject and citizen, um, and not loading you up with five, six figures of, of student debt. That's, that seems pretty nice to me. I'd pay you higher taxes for that. I, yeah, I don't even think you'd have to pay higher taxes. I think it's just a matter of, you know, doing appropriations differently. And, and, uh, um, maybe some people would have to pay higher taxes, but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't think most people would, but, uh, Elon no, Musk, I agree. Maybe. I agree 100% for sure. 
Uh, just one, one last, one last thought. It, it, it occurs to me that um, it's not you, you expose the, the faux complexities, Neil, because it's quite simple, really. Like we just need people to spend their young years learning how to be a real human being, like a real person. Um, <laughs> because if you don't, you end up like Trump and the fascists, and you don't know how to be a person. And <laughs> and there's a reason that anti-democratic attacks are linked to uh, fascists and, and narcissists and, and all these people who themselves could have, uh, you know, benefited from a different kind of system, perhaps, and, and shaped them in, in a different way. So um, thank you for all you do in, in fighting this good fight, because it's interconnected with all these fights we're, we're involved in, right? Thanks very much. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Neil Krauss, the book is called The uh, Fantasy Economy. Um, we'll link to it in the uh, show notes. But yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. And thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>